Again, what a joy and a privilege it is to be with you this morning and to bring the word. Uh, it's, it's always amazing for, for me as someone who travels a bit uh, to be able to go to different parts of the country and immediately sense a bond with people, a kindred spirit, uh, because we serve the same Lord, the same faith, the same baptism. There's a unity that unites us together, and even though we don't know each other, at least not very well, uh, we share that common bond, and so it's, it's always a blessing to me to be able to visit other congregations and, and to uh, rejoice together in the Lord. Our scripture this morning uh, primarily will be taken from Psalm 11, so if you find that, uh, please put your finger there, but we're also going to read from Deuteronomy 32.4. So first from 30, Deuteronomy 32.4, hear the word of God. He, the Lord, is the rock. His work is perfect. For all his ways are justice. A God of truth and without injustice. Righteous and upright is he. And then Psalm 11. To the chief musician, a psalm of David. In the Lord... I put my trust. How can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? For look, the wicked bend their bow. They make ready their arrow on the string that they may shoot secretly at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold. His eyelids test the sons of men. The Lord tests the righteous, but the wicked and the one who loves violence, his soul hates. Upon the wicked he will rain coals, fire and brimstone, and a burning wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. His countenance beholds the upright. Here ends the reading of God's holy word. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord shall stand forever. Let us pause for prayer. Lord, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Through Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Well, Psalm 11 is like picking up a a novel that is just chuck full of action. Or it's like turning on a movie that immediately you're thrown into action. And that's how we find David in this psalm. There is immediate action. There's hardly any preparation for us. Yes, he begins with a very brief statement, uh, a voice of confirmation of his faith in the Lord, in the Lord I put my trust, or as the older translations might have put it, in the Lord I take refuge. 
But after that, we immediately sense something is not right. David is in trouble. And if we read the Psalms, as, as so many of you have done in your life, you know that the Psalms are filled with people in trouble, particularly David. Most of prayer is begun in trouble. And it's encouraging for all of us that we can bring our troubles, our discouragements, uh, whatever we are facing, to the Lord in prayer. In fact, uh, Calvin, in the introduction of his commentary on the Psalms, said this, and, and you may have heard this quote before, but it's so good. It said, he said, The Psalms are an anatomy of all parts of the soul. For there is not an emotion of which anyone can be conscious that is not here represented as in a mirror. Or rather, he says, the Holy Spirit has here drawn to the life all the griefs, the sorrows, the fears, hopes, cares, perplexities, in short, all the distracting emotions with which the minds of men are wont to be agitated. Isn't it comforting to know that in the scriptures we have a prayer book filled with all kinds of prayers, with many emotions that are reflected in our soul? And in fact, David questions his, uh, his friends, his ragtag group of soldiers who are helping him. How can you say to my soul? So David is in trouble. We know he's in trouble because they're telling him, run, flee, go. He's being chased. It's serious business. But he's also in trouble because he's got these advisors, and there may be well-intentioned advisors, but they're advisors, and they're telling him to go. So he's got kind of a double trouble here. He's in trouble, and then he's listening to people who may or may not be the wisest to listen to. And they're telling him, run. Things are not right, David. There's trouble. You know Saul and his army are after you. They want to kill you. So run, flee like a bird. You've seen birds flitter and float from branch to branch, and that's what they're telling David to do. Go, go, go. Take refuge in the mountains, David. You've done it before. The mountains, the hill country, it's a perfect place for you to hide in the caves or in some kind of stronghold. That was not the first time he had heard that advice. There were other situations that David faced where he had to run and he would disappear into the hill country. So it seems like legitimate advice for his friends to say, run, David, run, especially because of the presence of his enemies. His enemies are the wicked. They are prepared to commit violence. That's why they're so wicked. They're willing to kill David. They actually have their bow bent 
and the arrow is drawn, it's placed, ready to shoot. And as the text says, they shoot secretly. The other versions would say, they shoot at the dark, the upright in heart. It's dangerous to shoot in the dark. It's dangerous to shoot a bow in the dark. Let me tell you a little story. I'm in high school, and I'd gone hunting several years with my dad, and uh, I wanted to try bow hunting. So I worked at my job, saved up enough money, bought myself a new bow, arrows, practiced all summer. We get to the fall, deer season, right? I go out, my dad drops me off in the riverbed near some trees. We had heard there were some deer. The deer didn't tell us, obviously. Some other hunters did. And uh, he said, I'm going to pick you up at this time. Be here. So I said, okay. So I went into the trees, and I hid, and I was looking and waiting all day in the snow, looking for deer. Did not see one. The sun is going down. It's time. I go back to the place to meet my dad, get into the pickup truck. Sorry, dad, I didn't, get, I didn't see a deer. He said, it's okay, let's so we're driving off. We look over and there's 15 deer right at the edge of the trees. And I said, Dad. He said, no. It's against the law. And it's dangerous. It's dangerous to shoot in the dark. And these enemies are doing it with evil intent. They're doing it because they want to do it in secret. They don't want to be seen, but they want to do injury. And so David's advisors, when we think about what they're saying, they're not really malicious. They're well-intentioned friends. They've got some, some advice, but they are faithless. And so David is troubled with this. He has an expression of faith in the Lord, and yet his Well-intentioned advisors are telling him, run. And they further give evidence to David. They say, if the foundations are destroyed, what are we going to do? If the foundations are destroyed, what are the righteous to do? Now, what does that mean? Because that's a really interesting word, isn't it? Foundations. In fact, that word for foundations... Is the only, this is the only place where it occurs in the Old Testament. And commentators tell us that foundations here mean the, um, this, they relate to the state or society. It, re, it relates to um, the foundational principles of law and order and justice. So if the ground rules for society crumble, Everything else crumbles. So that's the general sense of the word. Well, what could the word mean, though, for for David and his friends? It's possible that they actually may be thinking about David and the promise that God has made to him. David, from your seed, you will have a son who will reign in righteousness forever. But David... If you die, 
How's that going to happen? If you die, the foundations are going to crumble. God's promises, what will happen? Well, we know today what it feels like to have foundations crumbling. We know that there are forces at work, even today, to overthrow the very fundamentals and principles of of Western society. Very definitions of what it means to be man and woman, marriage, are questioned and we see it all around us in the news. So we understand what the very crumbling of foundations mean, and it is a scary thing. So it's no wonder that David and his friends are unsure because they see the potential for danger. When I think of foundations, I have to think of my great-grandfather, So uh, his name was Ed Van Beek, and he had a moving company, a house moving company called Van Beek House Moving Company. This was back in the late 30s, 40s, into the 50s. He was kind of a farmer, but did the house moving on the side. And uh, he moved all kinds of buildings. He moved a little schoolhouse, and there were still, uh, still a teacher and kids in the class. He moved a house when there were still uh, people in the house. It was kind of funny. But his biggest job was a 90-by-28-foot soil conservation building that he moved on the ice across the Missouri River. I have a picture of it. And I know that uh, great-grandpa Van Beek would put these homes on foundations, The foundations had to be solid, of course. It's kind of a no-nonsense thing, right? You don't put a house on crumbling foundations. You can have an amazing, beautiful home with a lavishly decorated interior, a beautiful roof, and if you put it on a foundation that crumbles, what's it worth? It's going to crumble. It will eventually implode. So we understand these words from the song. That if the foundations are destroyed, what are the righteous to do? David's in serious trouble. What's he going to do? Well, to me the issue here is not should David flee and hide or not flee and hide. The issue is Who's he going to trust in? That's what this psalm is telling us. In the Lord I put my trust. But his friends are telling him you should trust in other things. Think about the examples of in David's life, though, where he did not uh, fear but trusted in the Lord. Think about these examples from 1 Samuel David availed himself of God's means of grace. David availed himself of God's word that was spoken to him. Let me give you some examples. In 1 Samuel 20, David is afraid. Why? Saul wants to kill him. Saul is after him. Jonathan, Saul's son, 
and his dear friend, says to David, David, do not be afraid. You shall not die. And then he tells him, go in peace. God's word came to him, and he trusted that word. So the issue wasn't that he left or fled, but that he was trusting that God would protect him as he fled. Two chapters later, 1 Samuel 22.5, all of a sudden, seemingly out of nowhere, the prophet Gad comes to David and he says, don't stay here in this stronghold. Depart. Go to the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Hereth. Another example. David is still on the run, but he is waiting upon the Lord and hearing God's word spoken to him. He is inquiring of the Lord, and God is responding to him. Trust. Another chapter later, David's on the run again. And uh, chapter 1 Samuel 23, verses 3 and 4. David's men said to him, Behold, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more if we come to Kila against the armies of the Philistines? And then listen to what he, it says. And David inquired of the Lord yet again. And the Lord answered him and said, Arise, go down to Kila, for I will deliver the Philistines into thine hand. The word Kila means citadel. It means castle. Could you imagine that? David's telling his, his friends, Oh, we're going down to the castle and we're going to attack it. And the Lord tells us we will prevail. And they did. And later in that chapter, Saul continues to come after him. And it said Saul went on the side of the mountain. David and his men were on the other side of the mountain. See the picture? And David made haste to get away for fear of Saul. So David's running. But listen to what happened. Saul and his men... Uh, Came and they were about to take them, and then a messenger appeared unto Saul, saying, Haste and come, for the Philistines have invaded the land. So, what happens? Saul is about to get David, but a messenger just simply appears. David is spared, and it said, David went and dwelt among the strongholds of the Engedi. And they called that place. Escape Rock. So, David, in the face of fear, the fear that he's feeling because he's being chased, the fear that his friends, his advisors, are feeling, in the face of that fear, he trusts in the Lord. And he says that, in verse 1, in the Lord I put my trust. Or, as I mentioned, other translations say, I take refuge. In Yahweh do I place my trust. David finds his confidence restored in the Lord. And I love that phrase, I take refuge in him. That is an important phrase when you look at the Psalms. Have you thought about that? How many times... Uh, to take refuge in the Lord occurs in the Psalms over and over again. 
In fact, if you look, if, if you read the Psalms a lot, you'll know that you read Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. It's kind of like an introduction to the whole book of Psalms. You really need to see Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 as an introduction. It starts with, blessed is the man, and then Psalm 2 ends with, blessed are those who put their trust in him or who take refuge in him. And then the whole rest of the Psalter is about someone who's in trouble and taking refuge in the Lord. And when you think about the first lines of so many of the Psalms, they're about taking refuge in the Lord. Think of 7-1, O oh Lord, my God, in you I seek refuge. 11-1, in the Lord I take refuge. 16-1, protect me, O God, for I seek refuge in you. 31-1, I seek refuge in you, O Lord, may I never be disappointed. 46-1, which we sang about. God is my refuge and stronghold. 57.1, have mercy on me, O Lord. Have mercy on me, for I seek refuge in you. I think you get the point. I could go on and on. Of the 57 times that in the Lord I trust or put my refuge, I take refuge, of the 57 times in the Old Testament, 37 times it takes place in the Psalms. What I'm trying to say to you is that for people who are in trouble and who want help in the Lord, the answer is to trust in him, to take refuge in him. Sounds real simple, doesn't it? But that's the fundamental response of God's people when they're in trouble. What's the opposite of that? If taking refuge in the Lord is what the godly are encouraged to do, what would be the opposite of that? Well, we get an example, actually, in, in Psalm 52, 7, from the arch enemy of David. Do you know who that is? Saul's right-hand man. You know, Saul was evil, right? And every time you have an evil ruler, you've got to have an evil right-handed man who does all the nasty things that the ruler wants. And so Saul said to Doeg, the Edomite, you remember that name, right? Uh, he was the one who was constantly after David. So Psalm 52.7 says this about Doeg. See the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches, and sought refuge in his wealth. There it is. Doeg the Edomite is the classic example of the opposite of David. If David is someone who takes refuge in the Lord, who trusts in him in very difficult situations, Doeg the Edomite is the absolute opposite. He trusts in his riches. He trusts in his wealth. Or here's another example from uh, the life of Israel. So the prophet Isaiah came and he prophesied against Israel. He brought judgment against them. And he said uh, in chapter 30, verses 1 and 2, Woe to the rebellious children, says the Lord, 
who take counsel, but not of me, who devise plans, but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin. Do you see that? They're making plans, they're devising things, but they're not doing it thinking about the Lord. They're not inquiring of the Lord. They're not seeking the Lord's word. Instead, they're doing their own thing. And so it says, who walk to go down to Egypt and have not asked my advice to strengthen themselves in the strength of Pharaoh and to trust in the shadow of Egypt. In other words, they sought refuge in Pharaoh. The people of Israel sought refuge in Egypt, and they did not seek the counsel of the Lord. It's another example. The exact opposite of what it means to take refuge in the Lord. So seeking the Lord when we're in trouble means taking refuge in him. It means it's as if you were walking in the desert and you prayed to God for help. And then you see a rock, a rock in the wilderness, a place where it shouldn't be. And you find a place of shade. You find shield from the sun. You find a hiding place from enemies or animals. You find a fortress to rebuff an enemy. That's what it means to take refuge in the Lord. And that's what David does in the midst of his troubles. In the face of danger, in the face of his misguided friends, when everything looks like it's crumbling all around, David looks to the Lord with the eyes of faith. And what does he see? Verse 4. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord is in his throne. The Lord's throne is in heaven. So, What David sees with the eyes of faith is that God reigns. He reigns from heaven. He's on his throne. He rules over all things. He is sovereign. And then David goes on. He says, his eyes behold, his eyelids test the sons of men. So not only is the Lord reigning sovereignly in heaven, but perhaps even more relevant, it says, He's paying attention to everything that's going on. His eyes behold, it says, which is a very unique word for seeing something. It means he's intently gazing upon something or someone. And what is he gazing upon? He's he's gazing and looking upon the sons of men. He's looking and, and is aware of everything that's going on, of everyone. The Lord examines his people. He tests his own people. And it's that word testing there is the same word as that we're familiar with in the Old Testament, the testing of metals. And so you test metals and with fire it burns off the dross and then there's purification that takes place. That's exactly what happens to God's people When they go through hardships, we are tested and we, in the Lord's providence, come out more purified. 
But what happens to the ungodly with that same testing? Well, it says they also face a fire, but it's not a refiner's kind of fire. In the end, what the Lord will do is to punish them with a different kind of fire, the same kind that destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. One is a purifying fire for God's people. The other is a fire of judgment upon those who love wickedness and evil. It's what Job talked about in his own life, right? He said, look, I I go forward, he's not there. Backward, I can't perceive him. When he works on my left hand, I cannot behold him. When he turns to the right hand, I cannot see him. But he knows the way that I take, and when he has tested me, I shall come forth as gold. So you see the picture there? David's friends are in the dark. They don't have the eyes of faith. His enemies are in the dark because they're up to evil and no good. But David perceives that God is not in the dark. God sees everything He beholds what's transpiring, and he tests the church, and he will not abandon his dominion over all things. Listen to uh, Calvin's words on this particular verse. He's such a dense writer. It's so thick in what he says. You really have to think about what he's saying. He says a lot, but listen to this. He says, It is the glory of our faith that God, the creator of the world, does not disregard or abandon the order which he himself at first established. When he suspends his judgment for a time, it becomes us to lean upon this one truth that he beholds from heaven, just as we now see David contenting himself, that God rules over mankind and observes Whatever is transacted in the world, although his knowledge and exercise of his jurisdiction are not at first sight apparent. A couple things I take away from that great quote. God does not abandon what he has created. He created the world in order, and he will not give up on his creation. He may suspend his judgment for a time, at which time we are to lean upon the truth that he is watching all things. And even though it appears that his judgment is being suspended for a time, it's only for a time, he will not abandon forever. Those are comforting words. Those are really comforting words for people who are living in difficult times. Well, there's one more point that I must make that this passage shares with us. Verse 7, the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness or righteous deeds. This psalm is a testimony to the faith of David, isn't it? And in God's sovereign goodness. It begins with, in the Lord I put my trust, in the Lord I take refuge, and it ends in the Lord is righteous and he loves righteous deeds. David expresses confidence in the Lord and in his righteousness. David knew that the best method in our spiritual warfare against Satan and against his fiery darts is to hold up the shield of faith 
to fix ourselves firmly upon the Lord. I just want to note that David's righteousness is not being upheld here. It's the Lord's righteousness. We know from David's life that he was not an example of righteousness. Remember what the Lord said to David through Nathan the prophet? Let me read it to you. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have given you much more. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife. You have killed him with the sword uh, with the sword of the people of Ammon. And now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. And he goes on. Is that an example of righteousness? No. David is a sinner through and through. David is like you and me. That's why David does not exalt in his own righteousness, because he did not have it. That's why David exalts in the righteousness of the Lord. That's why later on, the Apostle Paul in chapter 4 of Romans, in contrasting uh, works versus faith, says this, But to him who does not work, but believes on Him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. So Paul, in looking at Abraham and David, said, They have nothing to boast in their own life. They were reckoned righteous because they looked away from themselves and trusted in the Lord in his forgiveness and grace. They looked to the Lord's righteousness to be reckoned righteous. Great David, as great as he was, looked to his greater son, the Lord Jesus, for mercy. And that's why David said in verse 7, the Lord is righteous and he loves righteous deeds. Oh, friends, this is the gospel for us this morning. This is good news. This all-seeing Lord of the universe, this Lord who is not in the dark on what's happening today in our world, in the downtowns of our big cities, or in Washington, D.C., and all the corruption that we see. He's not in the dark about what's happening. He is in the light because he is light, and he loves his people. He loves those who trust in his righteousness, as demonstrated in Jesus Christ. Romans 3, Paul said, God put forward his son as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Jesus Christ is the righteousness of God. 
and he loves righteous deeds. I urge you this morning to turn to Jesus Christ with confidence, lean on the promises of all that God is for you in Christ. Take refuge in him in the storm of life. Fix your feet upon him who is the rock. And because of his mercy, you too shall behold the Lord's face. So just as the Lord is intently gazing upon everything now and beholding his people, we are promised that if we trust in his righteousness, we too shall behold him face to face. So what are you going to do? What are the righteous going to do if the foundations are destroyed? Beloved, be encouraged today, knowing that the Lord is not aloof or indifferent to the injustice, the violence, the crumbling of the earthly city's foundations. He reigns with all authority and dominion. His intense gaze is upon his creation and his people. And the only way that we will refresh and strengthen our faith is to look to God in Christ. I urge you to be firmly persuaded that he will vindicate his people. He will judge those who love violence and evil. He will come to judge the living and the dead. Let us pray. Our Father, we are so grateful for your word and for the encouragement and the comfort that we find in troubled times. Thank you for the life of David, for his example of faith, of looking to you and your righteousness. May you give us greater faith to trust in your very great and precious promises. Bless this congregation. Bless Pastor Todd and his family. Thank you for his ministry and continue to bless it here. We commend ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen.